Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke chapter 19 is where we are today, looking at the events of Palm Sunday. Today, next Friday, and then again, Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday, we have a three-part series called Expect the Unexpected. And the reason I'm calling it that is because we become used to the details of Holy Week. After years of hearing the story, after Recalling the events of the cross, the palm branches, the empty tomb over and over again, this whole portion of the, of the week ahead of us, we, we're familiar with it all. But we have to recognize that when these events first happened, they were totally unexpected. Nobody saw these things coming. Expect the unexpected. And today's key concept is this. The unexpected king does an unexpected thing. He weeps. Luke chapter 19. Palm Sunday is a joyful celebration. We call it Palm Sunday because part of the celebration that the people gave to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem that day long ago was they cut off palm branches and they waved them as he came. They also took some of those palm branches and put them on the street and they took off their cloaks and put those on the street so that when he was riding the colt, the foal of a donkey, into the city of Jerusalem, the feet of that donkey and the feet of his entourage did not touch dirt. They touched only the coats of the people and the palm branches. And they did that because this is the traditional welcome of the new king. In doing so, they're declaring in their actions, we recognize, Jesus, that you are the the king. And the events of Palm Sunday are recorded in all four Gospels. Each of the Gospels takes a little bit of a different take on it. But Luke, in his telling of the events of Palm Sunday, really doesn't even let us see Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. He, He concentrates more on what happens on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. Jesus is approaching the city. And as he approaches the city, he asks two of his disciples to go find him a a colt, a young donkey to sit on and to ride. And the first question that comes to us as we hear about the events of Palm Sunday is why would he do that? Because Jesus, we know to be an avid walker. And as a matter of fact, the distance is not very far. From the top of the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem is not a long walk, not a far distance. 
And this is, to my mind, as far as I can see, the only time in all the Gospels we see Jesus riding on an animal. This is not what he usually does. So why does he do it here? And the answer is because Jesus is positioning himself to visibly carry out the fulfillment of a prophecy made long ago. A messianic prophecy that was written by the prophet Zechariah. It says this, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus gets on that animal and rides in, over those coats and those palm branches. He wants the people's mind to connect to that prophecy. He wants them to remember those words and understand that in doing this, this way, he is making a claim. And the claim that he's making is the Messiah that the prophet was looking forward to all those many years ago is me. I'm the one that he had in mind. And so he rides in on that donkey and on the, the, in the middle of all the cheers, in the middle of, of all of the praise and the waving of the branches that we call the triumphal entry, something very untriumphal takes place. So go with me, chapter 19 to verse 41. Luke says it this way, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Some of your Bibles might read the day of your visitation, the visitation of God. Now, this is not all that happened on Palm Sunday, but this shockingly happened on Palm Sunday. Luke focuses with us on the moment when Jesus and his entourage crest the hill of the Mount of Olives when they begin to go down towards the city, and for the first time, Jesus can see the city laid out before him. And as he sees that city, he realizes that Jesus is not moving towards a celebration. He's moving towards a rejection. And Christ knows that. He understands what's coming. A rejection is coming, even though all these people around him are very happy. And he understands that that rejection will have consequence. And there's something that's almost childlike in our Lord here. As he begins to weep in public. When you're a child, you weep in public. In the midst of a crowd, maybe you get lost, maybe you get scared. When you're little, you cry. It doesn't bother you that people are looking and people are around you. But when you grow up, You really don't do that anymore, do you? When you grow up, something upsets you and and you begin to get emotional. What do you do? You say, excuse me, and you go into another room. You kind of hide 
the weeping and the tears. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's in the midst of the celebration. People are cheering him and waving branches, and he cries. I want to tell you, when a strong man, when a famous man, when a man of leadership cries, it gets your attention. And don't think that it means that he got a little misty fighting back some tears. That's not it at all. The Greek language there talks about a sobbing. He exploded in sobs as he sees the city before him. Because he sees what's coming, not only for him, but for them. See, there are a few aspects of what's going on in the subtext here that we need to know. And the first thing is he's very aware of Jerusalem's ignorance. If you had only known. It means that they're missing something. They're missing something vital. They're missing something important. And what are they missing? Verse 44. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This was their visitation by God himself. Jesus is weeping over the fact that his people don't realize who he is. They don't get it, his identity. They don't understand that in this moment, Jerusalem is unique among all of the cities of the world. In this moment, Israel is unique among all of the nations of the world. God himself is physically present among them, bodily there. And they don't, miss, they don't see it. They miss what's going on. Jesus in the past has criticized them for not picking up on the clear signals of what's going on. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking and he says this, when the, wind oh, when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Be aware. Open your eyes. They're missing something vital. And I want you to see that they are being held accountable for what they're missing. You've got to ask the question, why? Why is it that Jesus is saying, you are going to reap consequence because of your ignorance on this issue, the day of your visitation. It's because of the reason that they're ignorant about what's going on. And that is that they have rejected that which would bring them peace. Verse 42. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. What's going on here? What would bring them peace? Interestingly enough, the exact phrase, the exact order of words that here in, in Luke 19 says, what would bring you peace, is also recorded by Luke in his gospel as he tells us about a parable that Jesus told. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about the cost of being a disciple. And he says this, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. 
Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the other coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a far way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. The phrase there, terms of peace, in the context of warfare, is exactly the same Greek phrase translated here, what would bring you peace. The imagery is, I'm about to get defeated in this battle, and I ask for terms, which means I need to surrender. I'll avoid the war, but there are terms that I have to pay. There's an agreement that I have to make. Terms of peace. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is willing to make peace, but only on his terms. Too many people think they can bargain with God. Think that, well, I'll be good for a while, and I'll say some things for a while, and I guess when I, when I get to heaven, I'll be able to, you know, make a good argument, state my case, things should go well for me. God does not bargain. There are terms for peace, and only His terms, and if you reject them, there will be no peace. And Jesus looks at Jerusalem, and He's not saying, these poor people have never heard my terms. He's not saying, well, they're totally unaware of what the terms of peace are. No, they've heard them many times, as have we. They've heard them through the prophets. They've heard them through the scriptures. They've heard them through his own teaching. Luke, in, in chapter 13, quotes Jesus as saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's the posture. It's not that you don't know the terms. You're not willing to surrender to the terms. They have ignored the terms. And so they have missed who Jesus is. The Word made flesh the culmination of God's outreach to humanity. When he says they don't know the terms, he means they have rejected the terms of peace. And at this moment, it's too late. The terms are no longer offered. But now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, all these things bring a result, and the result is certain. The time for second chances is past. The die is cast. The terms that would bring them peace are no longer available. They're hidden. And who has, has hidden them? God has hidden them. And the message is, time is up. But Jesus weeps. Because all of that brings him grief. These are people he loves. These are people he cares for. Jesus is in the position of the prophet Jeremiah, leading up to the year 586 B.C., when it was the Babylonians who were coming to destroy Jerusalem. And Jeremiah knows it's coming. He realizes that this will be inevitable and he says in Jeremiah 9, Oh, that my head were a spring of waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Jeremiah foresees that the invasion is coming. Jesus foresees destruction is coming. 
It's not going to be the Babylonians. It will be the Romans. And like Jeremiah, he loves his people. He wants peace for them. But it can only come on his terms. And those terms have been rejected. And the result? Verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is what's coming. Here we see the heart of God and the mind of God together. He grieves over the fact that a day of reckoning is going to come, but the day will come nonetheless. He grieves over the willful blindness of the people who have heard him and listened and seen the miracles that he's performed. They've rejected him, but those, that rejection will have consequence nonetheless. Verse 44. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Thirty-seven years later, there was a revolt in Israel. There were those who decided it was time to throw off the occupation of the Romans, to get rid of their oppression, and to rise up as a people. That rebellion lasted for a little more than three and a half years. It lasted until General Titus led the Roman 10th Legion to lay siege on Jerusalem. And they built the embankments and the siege warfare, just like Jesus predicted here. They cut everything off. Nothing went in or out of the city of Jerusalem, in or out of their walls, until A.D. 70. And in A.D. 70, the Roman forces invaded the city They tore down the walls. They tore down the temple. They burned the city. And the population was either killed or enslaved. That was it for the rebellion. And nothing was left of the temple of God, the temple that Jesus was looking at as he topped the crest of the Mount of Olives. That was right before him, and he knew that nothing would be left except a few steps on the south side and a wall on the western side that held up the the embankment for the the hill, for the, the Temple Mount. We call that the western wall today. It's where Jews go to pray. The destruction was complete. Years later, the Emperor Domitian had an arch built in honor of General Titus, celebrating this great victory. And if you go to Rome today, you can go to... Uh, Titus's arch, and you can see the depiction in stone of the destruction. I have a picture of it. That's Titus's arch in the forum in Rome today. Look in the inside, and you'll see a depiction of what happened. Let's go to the next slide. You see there them showing the Roman legion carrying off the temple artifacts. The one that's plain in your view is the candelabra, the candlesticks of the temple. And Jesus foresees all of this coming. We can see it as history today. And so amidst all of the rejoicing and all of the waving of palms and and all of the cheers that he's receiving, Jesus knows it is too late for this city. You might say, well, well, why? I mean, it seems like they're catching on. Look at verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Don't think for a moment that this is going to change 
the direction that they're going. There's no chance of that. The time has passed for Jerusalem to avoid judgment. This moment of popularity will wane. The leaders and the great population of the city will reject him. And the visit by the Son of God will be ignored. And Jesus knows all this. He understands it's too late. But he is acting in such a way to make sure they see that the prophecy is being fulfilled. A clear statement of who he is. But with that statement comes the message. Time runs out. There is a moment when it is too late. There is a day when there's no more chance. When the door of opportunity has closed. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why is it that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words? I mean, Palm Sunday is a happy holiday, usually. Why does Luke include this tremendously untriumphant moment? And the answer is, he wants you to understand how God feels. So it works out. The heart of God contains both justice and mercy. Jesus is going to do the most merciful act in history. But he understands that there is a judgment coming on these people. Jesus is not a statue. He's a real man. When he cries, there's a lump in his throat. Tears come down his cheeks just like us. And he's weeping, recognizing that 40 years from now, some of these people will still be alive. And they will know this destruction. But Luke doesn't just write this to tell us about the doom of an ancient city, but to remind us that Jesus comes with terms for us all. And he comes to us individually with terms of peace. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying the terms of peace are still being offered. You must accept the terms. No one bargains with God. What are the terms? The terms are lay down your arms. Put away the weapons of pride and rebellion and self-sufficiency. Stop thinking that you don't need a Savior. Somehow you can do it yourself. Stop believing that you can win a war against God. Reject the foolish idea that it will all work out one day without Jesus. The terms of peace are admit your defeat, accept your pardon, and recognize that when you surrender, what you experience is forgiveness and love. On the cross, Jesus took our guilt so that justice of God is served and love is offered. And the tears that Jesus sheds on that road to Jerusalem, he's still shedding for some of us who are just like where they were, pushing the terms away. The beating heart of the center of the gospel is this. God loves you and wants you to be saved from the destruction that will come if you reject his terms. And the reason that Jesus weeps over those who say no to that is because he recognizes that the terms of peace are born in love. And what they give you is hope and joy and purpose. Rejecting the terms 
may feel good for a while, but living on your own terms ultimately brings destruction. Max Lucado tells a story of a bright summer, summer day when he was in his backyard with his then little girl. His daughter was small. She was playing there in the yard, and, and he heard the ice cream truck out front coming down the street. The bells were ringing. And so he decided to go buy an ice cream for her and his little girl. She was playing in the sandbox. He went around and got two ice cream cones, came back around the, the, the side of the house to the backyard, only to find his little girl was sitting there eating sand. Sand in her mouth, sand on her hands. So what should he do? Should he say to himself, well, I guess she likes sand better than ice cream. I'll eat both cones. Or should he do what a loving father does and recognize that she doesn't understand that a greater pleasure awaits? So he took the hose and he cleaned off her hands, he cleaned out her mouth, and and she didn't really didn't want that to happen in the time. But then he gave her ice cream. See, the trouble with our small perspective, our limited vision, is we think that in our own terms we can have pleasure enough. But eventually your terms will cheat you. It brings destruction and you miss the greater pleasure. God's hope. God's joy, God's promise. And it starts when you lay down your arms and stop fighting with God. Don't hear the words of hope and say, well, it sounds emotional. I don't like emotion. That's to reject the terms. Don't hear the message and say, well, you know, I'm much much too intelligent for all this stuff. That's to reject the terms. Don't listen to the call of faith and say, well, it sounds like I'll have to change something. And, you know, I like my freedom. I'm all about choice. Don't hem me in. That's to reject the terms. And when you reject the terms, you miss the visitation. When you miss the visitation, one day, time's up. But time is not up right now. Not for some of you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I say all this because I am convinced that somebody here is fighting against God. You've heard the message, you've heard the terms, you've heard the description, and you're pushing it away. You've pushed it away a long time. And I'm here to warn you, there comes a time when time is up. But for you today, it doesn't have to be that way. If today you're saying, through the prompting of the Spirit, I want the forgiveness that Jesus offers and I will surrender to love, I invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. Right where you sit silently, just repeat this to God, saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. I surrender my heart to you. I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins and make me your child. I want to be yours today. Those aren't magic words. There are no magic words. But if that prayer corresponds with the desire of your heart 
and you're calling out to God. The terms have been accepted. And everything changes. Now if you pray that prayer along with me, I'd like to pray for you. And encourage you in the faith. So with no one else looking around, if you pray that prayer, would you simply slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I pray with you. Right here in front. God bless you. Right here. Thank you, sir. Here in the middle. Thank you both. Thank you, sir. You can put your hand down. Anyone else? While we tarry. Would you pray that prayer with me? Lord, I thank you for these who are saying, I accept the terms. I, I'm not going to war against God. Lord, I pray that we all recognize that this is not a bargaining relationship. We come to you needy and lost, and you receive us with love and grace. Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we will have that heart of God urgent about the hope of salvation for those we care about. So thank you, Lord, that you are the king. You are the king that we worship and the king that we serve. We love you. We want to serve you well. Help us, Lord, we pray, for we look to you for guidance. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand together as we sing. Just as Jesus demonstrated compassion, we want to be like him. We want to be like the humble king. and go our separate ways but if you prayed that prayer with me a moment ago I would like to send you a a booklet that talks about this journey of faith that you're now on 
But in order to send it to you, I need to know who you are and your address. And so I invite you, if you, whether you raised your hand or not, if you prayed that prayer with me a moment ago, to simply slip forward and be with the prayer counselors by the prayer table. They have a little card they're going to have you fill out so that I can send you that booklet this coming week. But also, if you have something else for prayer, maybe there's an issue that you're going through in life, something that there's a burden that you can lay down, they'll wait for you and they'll pray with you so you slip forward. But first, let's all pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we now enter Holy Week, this is the week where our focus is on you and what you did for us and who you are to us. Lord, we pray that in this week we are able to tell the story. Help us to be inviters, to bring others to hear the story. And Lord, we pray that we would represent you well in the words we say and in the actions that we do. Thank you, Lord, we get to do that. Dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.